Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. Hi, welcome to Fire Grand Strategies and Other Stuff from the Street with Anthony Avillo and Jim Duffy on Fire Engineering Talk Radio, where firefighters come to share their knowledge, their ideas, their opinions, and most of all, have a little bit of fun at the same time. So stay tuned and enjoy the show. Hey, welcome to the last of February. Fireground strategies and other stuff from the street. Almost March, just a few short hours. Uh, tonight, Anthony Avillo is unavailable. We have Tom Merrill filling in from upstate New York. Tom, why don't you give a quick introduction of who you are and a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get our show rolling. Sounds like a plan. First of all, thanks for the invitation. So glad to be here. Really appreciate it. I always like talking to the brothers and sisters out there about our great fire service. So Tom Merrill here from just outside Buffalo, New York, where it's 24 degrees right now, which is actually a beautiful evening for us. We love it. Only a little bit of snow out there, but we know how to deal with it. But uh just outside Buffalo, I'm in the town of Amherst. It's a first ring suburb of Buffalo. Amherst is protected by 10 volunteer departments. I'm in one of the 10. I'm in the Snyder Fire Department, 100% volunteer. I joined in 1982, Backstep uh, alumni, uh, rode the tailboard and um, went through the ranks, did 15 years in the chief officer ranks, including five as chief of department. And I am currently a fire commissioner, one of five fire commissioners for the Snyder Fire District, which oversees the Snyder Fire Department. It's like a political entity, much like a school board is in some areas. And uh, just uh, been involved since, like I said, since 1982 and launched my professional volunteer series on fire engineering talk radio, along with a bunch of articles uh, about 10 years ago. I think it was two, actually about eight years ago. And uh, that's going strong. And uh um, that's what's led me to where I am tonight. So thank you for the invitation to be here with you. Well, you forgot one thing though. Uh, FDIC is coming up real. FDIC is coming up real soon, and the professional firefighter that you were just speaking of, you're doing a class at a four-hour workshop at FDIC. Uh, I understand. Yes, back uh, for another engagement, which means I must be doing something right. I'm very honored and appreciative to Bobby Halton and everybody, Diane and Ginger and all the other uh, people over there at Clarion Events and Penwell and Fire Engineering for inviting me back. Four-hour pre-conference workshop. Uh, I'd like to invite all the listeners to attend. It's uh, Tuesday, uh, the 26th of April from 8 till noon. It's uh, the Professional Volunteer Fire Department where we talk about how being professional really, in my opinion, has nothing to do with earning a paycheck. It's how you approach the job. It's how you treat people, how you interact with the community, all those things more than any paycheck to find true professionalism. So uh, that's a four-hour class. I go over 12, what I call key building blocks to the professional foundation. 
Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to it. I, I think it's, it's a great concept. Um, you know, I've always taught and always said that um, being a volunteer is no excuse for being mediocre. And now I'm starting to see that all over the Internet, which I really like. Um, I probably stole it from somebody, but I've been saying that for years. Uh, Mrs. Smith doesn't care when she dials 911 whether you get a paycheck or not. Um, I was lucky enough to be involved in both the volunteer service, um, just about six miles from the New York City line on Long Island, um, suburban slash urban, um, becoming more urban as time goes on. They're building 10-story buildings there now. It's kind of, it's pretty crazy. Um, but um, I spent 28 years in the Wallingford Fire Department, um, last 17 as a battalion chief, as most of the people who are listening know that. So I've been involved in both. And um, like you said, it doesn't matter whether you get a paycheck. Uh, right now, um, Mineola is getting fired, working fires on a weekly basis. You know, it's pretty crazy. They're really, really busy. And, um, you know, and tonight's subject, as some of you may or may not know, we're going to be talking about mutual aid and automatic aid and how it's changed over the years. When I started in the uh, mid-70s, there was mutual aid didn't happen till a chief, a volunteer chief, got on scene, declared a working fire, and asked, for specific companies to come mutual aid, um, which is puts you behind the eight ball. You show up and you have a uh, an ordinary constructed building, you know, brick and mortar, a fire blown out of a couple of windows, and on a Tuesday afternoon when your volunteer staff is much shorter than it would be at 10 o'clock at night at the same building, and you wait till you get there to call for help, and the other communities surrounding you are volunteer, and they have limited staffing on a Tuesday afternoon. So you're be starting way behind the eight ball. And the best way to fight a fire is to coordinate your tactics simultaneously and do it. But when you're showing up with four guys on an engine, maybe three guys on a truck, if you have a truck, and you have to do, you have to vent, you have to force entry, you have to get to the roof, blah, 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 blah and you only have seven people on scene, um, and because you waited to call for mutual aid, you're way behind, and you're playing catch-up when they do start arriving. Today, and I'm going to talk specifically about Long Island and Connecticut, uh, there's automatic aid. So I live in a very rural area. So I'm protected by a volunteer fire department, great guys, but again, Sometimes their staffing is limited. Um, there's automatic aid coming from surrounding communities. If someone report, sees fire in a building, so even before anybody arrives, they're coming automatically um, with tankers because I live in an area that has no hydrants, not where I work, but where I live. So that automatic aid gets everybody rolling at the same time. If they're coming from 12 miles away, they have to get from home get to the fire station, get on their tanker, and get to Durham, Connecticut, where I live. So the automatic aid is, I think we've progressed. We're losing some of the political boundaries that we used to have, but not everywhere. There are places in Connecticut in the same city, and I'm not going to name names. It's a city, and it's a big city. They have five different volunteer companies and a career department. 
the volunteer companies will call the volunteer company on the other side of the career company to come to their fire. And they would drive right through the career lights and sirens through their districts to go to a call. And I think that's insane. I think we should get the closest companies to the scene to do the job. And I'm sure, Tom, you believe that. And I know oh, you're doing that by, I know they're doing that up by where you are. Um, and I'm going to digress a little bit. I taught up in your area uh, last February or March, not sure which, but I can, but where the Buffalo Bills play, that building is protected entirely by volunteer. Am I correct in that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, 94 volunteer departments in Erie County, which encompasses Buffalo, and there's like three paid departments. So the majority out our way are volunteer. Of course, the paid ones. You know, there is the big the big paid one is Buffalo, the city of Buffalo. Of course, there's a couple other paid ones, but then the majority of the the other par- departments are mostly 100% volunteer in Erie County, New York. Yeah, so I think that you know when you you tell people that um, you know the Buffalo Bills football stadium is in a volunteer district, and uh, you know how about the EMS? Is that separate from uh, the volunteers there? EMS when is a game when the when a game is on do they have like EMTs and paramedics standing by in the stadium? Yeah, there's a there's standby uh, provided by um, paid service, but it, the the volunteers are also very intricately involved. It's quite an operation. It's quite a mutual aid oper, um, operation with everybody working together. Yeah, I think that's great. So um, your town. Amherst, that's correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. So how many volunteer companies, separate volunteer, distinct volunteer companies are in Amherst? There's 10 volunteer fire departments covering Amherst. And Amherst is about 135,000 residents. It's just about 50 square miles. And it's divided up uh, into 10 volunteer fire department districts, all separate. Now I'm going to ask you a question before we go deeper, because I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. Um, um, can you hold on one second? I have another caller calling in. Absolutely. Give me a second. Hello, Lieutenant. Hey, Chief. How you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I love to be able to call you Lieutenant. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> Only took me 25 years, but we took care of it. That's Okay. <laughs> Now you bring the experience <laughs> to the table, and I know that the men respect you. Um, Tom, I'm going to interrupt our last question for a second here. We have uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Rob Zajac from the South District Fire Department in um, the city of Middletown, which is just north of where I live and east of where I work. Um, Rob, why don't you introduce yourself so our listeners know who you are and where you come from? Hey, everybody. So... Lieutenant Rob Zajac, Lieutenant for South Fire District um, in the city of Middletown. The city of Middletown is unique, and I think it's unique up here in the Northeast where we have cities that are divided into separate fire taxing districts. So within the city of Middletown itself, there are three separate fire departments, two full-time career and one combination department, all in one city. Um, So when I first started, um, we 
didn't have automatic aid. Each department handled their own thing. If it was bigger than what was coming on your first alarm assignment, the officer that was in charge would request one or two pieces to come to the scene. Over the 25 years, we have evolved where now automatically within the city, you're getting two extra. So for my district, you're getting an engine in a truck with four people with four on each piece. You'll get two engines from the downtown department plus their on-duty battalion chief. And then the Westfield Fire District, we get another piece from. They're, they act as our RIT team. Automatically, if we call out a second alarm now, it used to be the officer would handpick where he wanted units from. Everything is predetermined now. What mutual aid departments are coming into you? Where are they coming? 50% of my fire district has no water. We do not operate a tanker in our department, so we rely on the departments that are south of us. One of them that Chief Duffy actually lives in, the town of Durham. Um, these guys are fantastic. We call for a tanker task force. The dispatch center that dispatches those units um, is very progressive, very forward-moving. They have set up different levels of tanker task force, so you can get a level one, a level two which are going to bring in tankers from many towns. Um, and it's predetermined. It's going to be five on your level one, five on your level two. So you're getting 10, 12, 14 tankers on your first alarm response if you're calling for those. So wow. the, the I'm, I'm going to stop the, you here. Mutual aid. Yeah. I'm going to stop you here because um, we were, before I picked you up, we were in the middle of a discussion with Tom Merrill, who's just outside of Buffalo. And just so you don't feel like the Lone Ranger, his city has 10 volunteer departments in it, 10 separate wow. volunteer districts. And he was just starting to explain that when I picked you up. So I, I want to get back to that conversation and we're going to get back to you. So it's not as rare as Absolutely. you think. Um, right here in Connecticut, we have Groton, which is the nightmare down there. But we'll get to that later. Not Groton. Um, you got Norwich. 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 So Groton, Stanford. There's a whole bunch of them. Yes. Now, Tom, you were explaining the 10 districts. And my question um, before I picked up um, Rob, are you all using the same SOPs or the same language or the same radio frequencies? Yes, yes, and no. Um, <laughs> so I can tell you that we've got uh, a very good mutual aid agreement in place, and it has been for a long, long time, always being tweaked and modified. The good news is everybody's using automatic aid today. The good news is it's coming from the closest departments. We're not skipping people, and personalities are not playing a part in who's coming. It's all about serving the community the best way possible. Radio frequencies are the same. For the most part, the equipment is the same. I mean, some are using Scott, some are using MSA, but hose is all connecting together because they figured out ahead of time who might have 4-inch large diameter compared to 5-inch. So that's all been figured out. Um, so the terminology is very is the same. There's you know, you could get in the side one, two, three, four, side A, B, C, D. We're doing that the same way, so there's no confusion there. We have standardized RIT, or we call it the FAST team procedures. We are okay. I want to stop you. I want to stop okay. you right there about RIT. If you're using different manufactured SCBA, 
how does that work? So someone has a writ pack and they have Scots and you're, and I'm making this up. You have MSAs. How does that work when you have writ, mutual aid writ teams when you're using different type of breathing apparatus? The universal connection helps tremendously. Okay. So you only work on the high pressure side. Mm-hmm. Then for that. Okay. That's good. And and then if that it's thought it's figured out ahead of time. I remember back in the day, we had uh, for our for our writ companies that we went to or fast we provided fast services to. We knew ahead of time what we had to take in, so we okay. had that all figured out ahead of time. Awesome. I'm sorry I stopped you, but I thought that was an important thing. No, that is important. It, years ago, NFPA wouldn't let you use the high pressure. You know, now everything comes with both the high pressure side, you know, the universal RIC connection, which was NFPA banned initially when they started doing RIC packs. But uh, today, uh, that's a, gr a great option. Uh, I really like that. Right. So I'm right. sorry, go on about how you work. And you said it was 124,000 people about in 50 square miles, your city? It's about 50 square miles. I think that the population that I last saw, for, it's at town of Amherst, it's, I think it was just over 130, might have been approaching 135,000 people, still okay. protected by 100% volunteers. And it, it, it's quite a town. I mean, it, it, uh, at one point, I don't know if it still is, it was one of the largest towns in New York State. Um, and uh, the University of Buffalo, which is a hu huge, huge SUNY or State University of New York system campus. There's actually two campuses. One is in the city right on the uh, line of Amherst. The other one's squarely located right in the town of Amherst. And uh, the town encompasses many office parks, many high-rise buildings. Um, it's got beautiful suburban living as well. And then in our northern part of town, it is very rural and um the company out there may only run 60 to 70 runs a year where a lot of the other companies in the town are running. Like my company averages a thousand to 1200 runs a year and uh, the busiest ones in the 15, 1600 runs a year. And the others are all a thousand, 800, 900 in there. So it's quite an operation. It, it really is. Wow. Now, do you have a, a town wide fire school? Or no, does the, that go to the county? It goes through the or county. It, it's New York's Firefighter One coordinated through our Erie County Fire Safety Division. They coordinate all the training, but they bring in the state instructors to run those classes, state and county instructors. And But I can tell you that the Chiefs Association, there's a town Chiefs Association that meets monthly. Um, and it actually isn't just my town. It's the two neighboring towns where... Coincidentally, my fire dispatch center dispatches to, which I'm a fire dispatcher. That's my paid job. The three towns that the town fire dispatch center dispatches to have a chiefs association, and they meet monthly to talk about uh, topics of universal concern, and they coordinate all the training together, too. Who's going to host a class? What training's needed? Who's got a lot of probies? Okay, we got to get a firefighter one class scheduled and um, it, it, it's just a very well-coordinated system. And that's how it is pretty much through Erie County. A lot of the towns what have... What are the other two uh, towns? Town of Newstead and the town of Clarence. And they, okay. Uh, I taught up there last year, um, again, where the uh, Buffalo Bills play. What town is that? Yeah, Orchard Park. You were in Orchard Park. Orchard Park. Yeah, I, I actually yeah. taught at the Orchard Park Firehouse. 
Okay, um, yep. I'll be going there next week for the Colt training, which you did last year. Yeah, that's what I did last year. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. You good crew this year. The guys from Jersey you have John Salker. You're going to love that. Yeah, I just happened to have the day off of work and said, you know what, I'm going to go to that. So I signed up for it. So Good. Um, now, let me ask you a question. Um, just within your town, do you guys do hand-on mutual aid training with each other? Yes. Yeah, I would say you the majority do of departments do. training with each other. Yes, my department definitely does, and I know of others that share tower dates together, so I'll say yes. Yep. Awesome. That's great. And do you do you take advantage, other than the cult class, you're going to the New York State Fire Chiefs? I know they, they have the, um, the flashover simulators and the, the trailers that they bring around. Do, your, do they come to Erie County and help you? Yes, and then some of our departments are fortunate enough. Getzville is a neighboring company of ours, and they've got a fantastic training facility where they do live fire right on their firehouse grounds. They've got the um, the trailers that uh, they use for live burns, and uh, and uh, so we also have the county facility, which is not far from our from our fire department. So I would, yeah, everyone's taken advantage of it. Um, I think everyone realizes the importance of not just working together, but training together. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was just out in uh, St. Louis County um, in Missouri and the whole St. Louis County. It's a pretty much of a quint concept. They all use quints, which is mind boggling to me. But they have SOPs written for the entire county that uh, whether volunteer or career. Um, your job is based on arrival order. So the first in quint or engine is, because in the city, some of them still have engines, um, that operates as an engine, the attack. The second in, in a quint-only department would do uh, water supply and truck work. So I thought that was really interesting, an entire county on the same SOPs. How difficult do you think that must have been politically? And I'll point this to, question to Rob. You're just working in uh, an area with a few districts trying to imagine getting, you know, the same SOPs for everybody. How difficult the process politically is that? Rob, this would be a, you. Yeah, this would be a complete nightmare. Um, <laughs> I would hope it could happen someday um, with with working for the dispatch center that covers most of the lower county the city that i work in has its own dispatch center and there's a couple others within the county and i i work part-time for the regional one um it would make things you didn't say the name lot, it's okay we're you're allowed valley, valley shore <laughs> communications yes. um it, it would it would make things so much easier because right now you know the 13 different towns that we dispatch for all of them have different sops what they want where they want if that could be organized into something where each response is going to get the same type of response. It would help on the dispatch end. It would help on the response end. It would help on assigning tasks on the fire ground. It, it definitely would make things a lot easier. Yeah, no doubt about it. And you, um, again, because I, I moved to Connecticut um, where I live in Durham now in, in 1992. And obviously you guys are actually closer your firehouse is actually closer to my home than a Durham volunteer firehouse. 
which is kind of interesting. But I always Correct. wondered about a lot of different things. How and again, a lot of this is political, and I'm going to try to um, be politically correct in how I do this. Some of the problems in your city and um, was some of the leadership didn't know how to play in the same sandbox together. Um, and that made it very, very difficult for you guys. Early on, when I first moved here, I couldn't believe um, you probably had four guys on duty. I know you originally evolved from a combination department, but you've become entirely um, career now. But some of the players, both in the city department and your department, just didn't didn't play well together. And I think, um, again, looking from the outside, I didn't live it. I didn't know all the facts. But I always looked and go, these guys would be so much better if they worked together. What I see, again, from the outside, you guys are doing it today. And you should be very proud of yourselves. You got through a lot of nonsense to get to where you are today. And uh, Yeah, there's, there's been tremendous changes. Um, when I first started, when I got hired, there was one officer and three firefighters on duty to man three pieces of apparatus. So there were times where I was driving an engine by myself or a ladder truck by myself, um, where we've evolved now and we're riding four people on each piece. Um, the, the working with the other city departments just has grown over the years where they were com- all the departments were combination. You, started seeing the dwindling numbers of volunteers or people that could respond from their jobs. So all the departments have put on more career people over the years, which is, has helped and different training scenarios, special operations teams, um, South fire district, Middletown and the town of Portland, which is across the Connecticut river. We operate a regional dive team um, that responds throughout the County and wherever else we're called. Way back when I first started, we all operated independently. Some people used one dive training facility. The others used a different one. So none of our rope signals were the same. None of our commands were the same. Getting a diver dressed wasn't the same. We're now on the same page where everybody's doing the same thing. We hold four joint training drills a year where we get together and all work. And it doesn't matter which department you're from. If I'm a dive tender that day, I could dress and tend any of the divers from any of the other departments. And so you're just stuck with your guys. So whoever shows up or whoever's available to respond to that call knows everybody's gear is the same. Everybody's SOP, everybody's line signals, everybody's communication is all the same out there. Yeah. You know where I live. So you know, I'm very familiar with your, your dive team uh, because, um, Tom, right down the road from you, a state park um, where there's a small lake, a medium-sized lake, and annually there's a drowning there. Um, and when I first moved here, because the, the state park is actually in the town I live in, so they were in charge, and they would only call one of the dive teams. Now, depending on what time of day, and again, this is my observations, not being part of it. So I'm going to just say, say you called South District to come and dive uh, for a rescue or recovery. Well, that particular day, there was only two people on duty that were on a dive team, and everybody else had to be a callback. Where 
the city department may have had three or four or five more members of the dive team, but because they weren't called, you know, and what Rob just said today, they're all coming and you're getting the resources you need at a much quicker time frame to do the job that they're, we're all sworn to do. And, and I think again, kudos, kudos, kudos. You know, this is uh, so important. The people who are in trouble don't care where you come from, what geographic boundaries, or whether you get a paycheck or not. They just want somebody to come and make their emergency go away. And I think what you've done is tremendous. Now, is there one person in charge of both teams, or is there one person in charge of each team? No, there's one person in charge of each team, and they talk pretty regularly and set up the trainings together and um, and come up with different topics or different ideas on how to do everything. Um, and it's been working out. It's been working out very well. We've Everybody's getting along much better than we ever did. Um, and I think that's the way with fire responses, um, automatic aid, um, dual response areas we have within the city where the call could be right on the line between the two districts. So one piece comes from one department, one comes from, from the other. And everybody works much, much better together now than we ever had in the past. You know, we've held joint confined space training drills. We've held joint um, building walkthroughs to familiarize ourselves with other buildings that are higher hazard within our entire city. And it's come a long way from that's our line, don't cross it, this is our line. We're not going to come across the years. So things have evolved over the years, and, and it's for the better. I have one more question. Well, not one more. I have lots of questions while we're talking to, tonight. But has your training tower not being able to be used anymore, has that hurt your interdepartment training a lot? Uh, yes, it has. Um, and, and that's just a whole um, political thing. Unfortunately, um, for years, they've been telling us we're getting a new training facility after they knocked the old one down, and they still haven't allocated money for it. I know our congressional you, delegation. Explain to, explain to Tom and um, our listeners what, um, what went on there, and not too much detail, not the political stuff, but yeah. how you so, have this burn building that's not existing anymore. In, in Connecticut, um, we're broken down into eight counties because we're so small. Uh, one state fire school, and then some of the larger cities have their own fire schools. In each county was assigned their own fire school. They were very similar layouts and plans. Um, about 12 years ago, the state of Connecticut wanted to shut down sewage treatment plants along the Connecticut River. And one of them that was slated to shut down because it was so old was the city of Middletown sewage treatment plant. So what they did is took over our land where the county fire school was on, and they ended up building a regional pumping station to pump sewage from Middletown up to a larger facility north of Middletown and effectively took all our training building away. We're very lucky on the south end where we are because we have Connecticut Valley Hospital 
and a few of the abandoned buildings they do allow us to train at and train in. And we also ho host, you know, different state fire classes in those buildings. The state USAR team uses it to practice. So we're lucky to have that there. But it, trying to get the new school built, it's been a battle for many a years. And we already have the land for it and everything else. We just need the legislature to kind of release the money so we can start the building process. And it's been a battle. And I know the county fire chiefs has been working on it for many years. Um, Freddie Dudek from the Killingworth Fire Department, he's been a huge spearhead of it. And they've been working. They've been working with the whole congressional delegation of Middlesex County. And nothing's nothing's moved forward yet. So just got to keep pressing on it and keep pushing the politicians and hopefully we can get this built. What are people yeah. in that state wanna... doing for uh what are people doing in that in that county for live fire and things like that? They they don't have a building to to drill no, in? No, we have to we have to go to other regional schools or you will head up to the city of Hartford or down mm -hmm. to the city of New Haven and use their burn buildings. And, you know, we have to rent them for the day and, you know, pay their instructors and everybody else. Um, so it is, it, it's, it hampers a lot of things. And a lot of departments are having to do that because we don't have anything left in Middlesex County here to, uh, to train or burn in. Hey, Tom, Tom, yes, there's sir. something you should know about Connecticut. There are eight counties, but there is no county government like in New York. So Middlesex uh, County does not have a government. They're just lines on a map. So really, it's the cities and towns, and the next highest level would be the state. So the state governs all this. It's not like um, Erie County has an Erie County government. You have uh, an executive. I think you still call them executives, like you have a county, county executive. executive yeah, yep. so it'd be the same in Nassau County on Long Island. There's a county executive. He would be like the mayor of the county. Um, well, in Connecticut, there's just lines on the map. There's like there's no tax money going to the county. There's so the counties are all really they don't exist. The cities and towns within that county have to get together. Um, it doesn't happen the way it happens in New York. And that's kind of strange. To you, it's probably really strange because uh, how big is Erie County? Oh, Erie County was, uh, I do, uh, I know that. It's, uh, give me two seconds on that because. Um, no, I don't need the exact answer, but a million people. It's just people, under a million, million people. people. It's just, yeah. uh, it used to be well over a million. It's, a, it's about 1,200 square miles. I think it's about 1,225 square miles. That's what it is. It, it had to come to me. Um, population last I heard was about 920,000 people. Used to be well over a million, but it's about 1,227 square miles. And in the county itself, there's a couple fire safety uh, training buildings, um, state-of-the-art uh, training centers that are used by all the county firefighters. Um, and then uh, there's also How far is a lot of falls. Montour Falls from Buffalo is a few hours away, three hours it or is? so. Okay. Yeah, and then. Um, and then some of the fire departments, like I said, Getzel, I mentioned them, but several other in my area, they have built their own beautiful training facilities. They're not going to match what's provided at the county facilities, but for a good evening drill, they they're pretty they do a lot of nice things there. 
We're very well. We're lucky. We're very well financed in our area with a separate. Um, well, where I am, I'm we're one of two fire commission districts in the town. There's another one. The others get their money from the town, but there's a separate fire tax that that um, people pay that goes to the fire companies. It works out really well. Wow. Yeah, the the world is 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 very different. As as I've been traveling more since I've retired. Uh, again, I was just recently in Missouri. In my class, there was a department that had three members, not three on a call, a total of three members. In that same room were Kansas City firefighters. And it was amazing the difference, you know. Mm -hmm. And there was another community that they had uh, five people on every piece. There were five stations and each with one apparatus with five people on each of them. And here's a department with three people total, and their mutual aid was 15 minutes away. Um, it's, so it's amazing. When I was there, I had a girl who had been in her fire department for three years and still hadn't been assigned turnout gear. And another person in my class, their operating budget was $10,000 a year. Now, does that include capital? Criminal. Like to buy equipment? Yes. Oh, God. Criminal. Wow. Criminal. Wow. So you know what? We all look at it and we, we complain about what we have. And Rob, you know I've just taught in Cromwell. Now Cromwell has either four or seven people on, depending on the time of day and the time of day of the week. Is that correct? There, as far as I know, there I think they're up to eight now on duty 24/7. They do run four shifts, but there there's three. I think three full timers right now and then the rest are staffed by part-time personnel okay and and they just got a safer grant last year and i know they were doing interviews last week um to hire the fourth full-timer for each shift so but there was a problem no, i actually started as a volunteer um before i went into the career service and you know i remember back in the early to mid 90s you know, we would have 18, 20, 25 people show up for, for fire calls um, on a volunteer basis. You know, the only thing we were given way back then is you got a very small pension. Um, so everything else was, you know, your own free time. You went to your own training, everything else. And slowly, you know, the numbers started going down. And I was a dispatcher in Cromwell for many years also. But you could just see the numbers start to go down and the call volume skyrocket um, where Cromwell went from this little sleepy bedroom community to being, you know, right on 91 in a suburb of Hartford um, with, with people who travel to and from the city with all the insurance and other businesses up there. And the, the call volume just skyrocketed from, I think when I started, we were doing 900 calls a year. They're doing about 3,000 now. So, yeah. it, and it includes just, EMS now. Did they do EMS when yeah, you were there? Yeah, they did EMS when we were there. And it, it is, it got tough. I remember we had a mutual aid agreement with the Westfield Fire Districts back in the 90s, where if we couldn't get an EMT to staff the ambulance, they would tone Westfield if they had an available EMT and they would meet us on scene. And that's how we would staff the ambulance for the day. I mean, wow. if not, then they would try to 
pass it off to one of the commercial services in the area. Um, but it, it, it was always an interesting challenge when you were trying, especially during the day, trying to scare people up and, hey, we have another ambulance call. There's a second one. Can we get enough people to show up? Yeah. So the funny thing you just mentioned the you just mentioned the pension program or the low staff program. I don't think yep. people and Tom, correct me if you're wrong now because you're still volunteering. Um, I don't think people volunteer for the low staff program or the pension program. People volunteer because they want to be part of something bigger than them or help their community. Um, but I think it's more being part of something special. Um, I know that was when I started, that's what it was about. I felt special being part of the volunteer fire service. Um, and I think to some things that the low staff program is actually hurting. Now people start asking what's in it for me. And I think, um, I also think society's changing and you, your kids play ball. Your kids are very involved in sports. You volunteer for everything with your kids. Um, so, but you must see there as well. People don't volunteer for anything anymore. They don't go to the Knights of Columbus. They don't coach Little League. They don't coach hockey. Um, you're asking too much of them, that, you know, but they'll go home and watch um, American Idol or whatever, whatever the show is, you know, uh, America's Got Talent, but they won't coach their kids um basketball team or little league team and i think that's part of what's happening in the fire and again i don't know I've, I've been away from the volunteer service but i still know a lot of volunteers i think society in general is is losing that volunteer spirit and i think that's one of the things that's hurting the volunteer service even starting to drift into the career service today People don't want to do that. People don't want to work overtime. Hey, uh, someone called out sick or someone's going to a class. I need two guys to work tomorrow. It's supposed to be off. People don't want to do it. I would have given my left arm um, to get an extra shift to make some overtime when I first started. I was working three jobs. <laughs> you know, I could have gotten pay to be a career firefighter from, you know, corporate America. So, but I think we're changing, and but I do see some hope that it's starting to come back in small dribs and drabs. What do you guys who are still involved in that stuff see? Do you see some hope that it's starting to come back a little bit? Well, I can, I'll, I'll, yeah, I can tell you that. Um, well, I got a, a lot I could say on this subject. Uh, number one, if what you said is correct about um, not getting people. Obviously, we're not getting people through the door like we used to. But that, to me, means you need to make them want to come through the door. So you got to make the firehouse a special place. You've got to make it a place people want to be at and make it welcoming, Well, uh, make it warm, make it be inviting to everybody. Um, it's 2022. You know, we. I had a line that I used at the Pinsky Law Conference last year, and I'll use it again. The fire service of the 70s and 80s and 90s was fantastic, and they did so much with so little in some cases to build what we have today, the volunteer fire service. And uh, they had great people. They did great things, and it was a great time. Well, there's no reason the fire service of 2022 can't be great. It just needs to change with the times. 
And uh, there's a lot of ideas we're doing in our area to try and attract members. But first and foremost, you're not going to get people to volunteer and stay at the firehouse if they come home and tell their significant other, well, that sucked, or they're made to feel (laughs) unwelcome. So, I mean, pride is a volunteer's only pay. So you really want them to be proud of what you're doing and 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 make it a warm, welcoming environment. And um, as far as the money goes, there's no 20 or 30 year old in my fire department that if you asked them why they're volunteering, it's for the low SAT program. But I will tell you, there's some 50 or 60 year olds that maybe are sticking around because of it. So it's not attracting the youth, but it's keeping some veterans. So I'll say that. Um, that being said, you can argue either way that it's too easy to make and we're not asking enough of them, but that's not for me to decide. That was established by other people, but it is keeping some veterans, and I've certainly witnessed that, and maybe I'm one of them now that I'm collecting because you start collecting in my area at 55, um, and it's not a bad thing. But um, <clears throat> I we've been doing okay in our area. We lose a lot of people to the South because a lot of them want to be paid firefighters or police officers or uh, something like that. And it's hard to get those jobs up here. So we lose a lot to the South, but we seem to continue to bring them in. It's a challenge. Sometimes we're sinking a little bit, but right now I'd say we're treading water pretty good. Our heads above water. We're trying new ideas. Um, I'm proud to announce one new idea we started. Um, It just started January 1st. I talked about it on my podcast last month. It's called an hours program, and basically for 100-plus years in my fire department, you had to make a certain percentage of the calls on a yearly basis, but we, we, we totaled them up every month to show where people were standing. And give or take, you had to make 25% of our runs per month for the year, and then training requirements as well on top of that. Well, we know times are changing, and I heard a great line from Dr. Candace McDonald at FDIC last year, who does a phenomenal job on recruitment, and she said, why should we penalize our members who are choosing to go to Little Johnny or Little Jane's Little League game or soccer match rather than go to that emergency call? Why should we penalize them when they're putting their family above that call or that training session? But maybe we can let them schedule when they're available. So we're trying it. In other words, you now can sign up to serve shifts at our firehouse, and you have to do so many hours a month. And its I can tell you we brought in eight new members the first month alone. Now, ask me in a year how it's going. I don't know. The jury is still out, but I'm proud of us for trying. i tell you what, that program, that system works so well in Maryland. Uh, it works duty shifts. And mm-hmm. it works. Um, I've heard that. East, East Wallingford Fire Department uh, in the city I worked in, in the town I worked in, um, they did it. They would have um, students who were going to UNH for fire and science degrees. They would be like interns. They had to be a firefighter one. Most of them came from Long Island and New Jersey. And while they were going to college here, they would uh, spend two nights a week in the volunteer fire station. It worked really well. Um, but along with what you're saying, if you want to be part of an organization that's very special, the culture in that department, if you have a bunch of whiny, divisive people in that department, you know, 
in volunteer departments, you know, the back row in every company meeting, mm -hmm. they think the young people suck and the new people suck because they don't know anything. Well, get off your ass and teach them something. But if the culture, like you said, inclusive, but that wasn't my original thought, but it's exciting. Everybody's proud of what they do. There's a waiting list in the department. It's still on Long Island and in Maryland, the volunteer services are really strong. Um, it's because of the culture. Long Island, 7 million people live on Long Island. It's 30 miles wide and 120 miles long, and 7 million people live there. Oof. And it's all protected by volunteers except for one city. You know, so they're doing something right. One of the things is that a lot of off-duty city cops and firemen volunteer, you know, on their days off. But still, it's the culture. What you're talking about, that you're part of something special. But those places say, well, you got to pay annual dues. And you got to be treated like shit for your first year. And um, you don't know anything yet, so shut up. Those places do not grow and they don't have waiting lists and they don't have enough people to man their engines. Um, you can see that here in Connecticut. You can see that in certain areas in New York. You can see it in many places. But you go to Kearney, Nebraska, there's a waiting list to become a volunteer firefighter in Kearney. They probably do three fires a year, but they do something special every year they have the annual installation dinners they invite families to things they have picnics for the family they have intercompany softball games the, the cops against the firefighters and it makes it fun so then when someone's got to get up at two o'clock in the morning when it's zero degrees out it's worth it to them aside from just helping the public Rob, yeah, you, yeah. even, on, even on the career side, um, you want to belong to a department that has a good reputation, that has a lot of pride. So do I join West Hartford or do I join Wallingford? Do you know what I mean? Um, they both call you at the same time. You make decisions based on their pride, or as Rick Lasky says, their pride and ownership. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. And uh, I think it's, uh, and you mentioned, you know, volunteerism is declining or has declined quite a bit in our country. I mean, my wife was the PTA president, and uh, I usually use that story to tell my younger members that you think politics are bad in a firehouse. They're bad everywhere. You've got to learn how to deal with it because it's going to be wherever you go in life. <laughs> well, my wife was also a Girl Scout leader. So, I mean, it's just everywhere. But uh, getting people to sign up and do things, it, it's tough. But if, if they see they're going to be part of something special and they're going to be made to feel welcome and you make them feel proud and give them reasons to be proud, first of all, you'll keep members. And second of all, m your current members are your best recruiters of, of new members. Yeah, Absolutely. I totally agree with that. that. I think both of you have skipped, although, Rob, I know you've seen it. Um if your leadership sucks, so someone comes in and wants to be a volunteer firefighter or career firefighter in South District Fire Department, um, if you don't have good leaders, you don't have minimum requirements for your leaders, 
Um, in some cases, you're elected to be the chief, whether you have any training to be an incident commander, um, you can become chief. And people want to believe that their leaders are trained better than they are and have their safety in their heart and in the forefront of their mind. If they feel that the leaders don't care about them or that they're more important than the people, both career and volunteer, they're going to leave. Someone who works in Jonesville Volunteer Fire or Career Fire Department and their leaders are not so good and they promote their friends to be captains and lieutenants and assistant chiefs. People are going to leave and go to the city of whatever, where they're treated better, um, they have better training. Um, and, you know, you might think training is extra work, but people want to be proud of who they are, and they want good training, and they want good officers. Um, Rob, what do you think? Do you think if you have a poor leader, people are more apt to leave and go to a different – and I'm talking just on the career side. I know it's true in the volunteer side. But sometimes yep. geographic boundaries let you want to be, like you can't be a volunteer in Mineola if you live in Wilson Park. You know what I mean? But in the career side, you can go put your application in anywhere. And some people say it's for the money, but I think most people leave because of other reasons. Do you agree, Rob? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, the The big problem we had for a number of years in our department was our, we had a very low pay scale and, and the way our pension program was. And we had a ton of guys leave for other departments, bigger, smaller, because they had better leadership, better pension program, better pay. Um, we had one firefighter who came to our department. He retired from a large city as a captain who was part of their rescue squad came to our department it was wonderful because he was one of my recruit instructors so that he was a probie because at the time i was a senior guy on the shift so it was wonderful to call him the probie and we had a great <laughs> time with it and he couldn't understand coming up from a department that would put 30 to 35 guys on a first alarm assignment to you have 12 with the the automatic aid coming in how the hell do you guys put fires out yeah. and he saw and he saw how everybody worked and how, you know, training pays off. And as long as everybody knows and does their job, things go nice and smooth. Granted, there's going to be hiccups at every call. But he ended up at 11 months leaving us because he got a call from another department that paid almost triple what we were paying. And he went there. And to this day, I have a lot of friends that work in that department. I think it's a great fire department. To this day, he will still tell them, guys, I'll go back to South District in a heartbeat if they paid me what you, they paid me here. Those yeah. guys know how to be firemen. And, and, mm. and I just think that, that that's a compliment to our department. You yeah, know, absolutely. you have this guy that came from a huge city that, you know, burned all the time, came to our little place, saw everything that we did, and then goes somewhere else and was like, oh, my God, it's not even close. So yeah. I think that was a huge compliment for us. And um, It's a definitely a huge compliment. You know what? My best friend in the world, almost. Um, he worked at FDNY. He retired on a squad 18, worked rescue four. In his, all his time there, well over 20 years, 
You only put a second bottle on once in 22 years. I could never do what they do, but have them show up at a fire with 12 people and try to do what we do here in Connecticut or in Amherst. Yeah. Um, you know, it's different. Um, but the camaraderie and the pride, and I'll take last thing, ownership, ownership, ownership is so important. Um, you have to, this is my house. You know, I hate people calling fire stations. It's a firehouse. I don't like fire station. And that's just me being picky. But if you believe this is your home, you know, um, you treat it differently. If you treat, you know, yes, I can, I don't get along with all my family. So in a firehouse, yeah, we have our assholes. Um, but we're all still family. We may be dysfunctional, but we're a family. And if that's what your firehouse is, um, you're going to attract people, career or volunteer. It's, you spend, you work 24th, right, Rob? Yeah. Yes, we do. So you live there for 24 hours. You eat together. You sleep together. You go to calls. You, you know, you're in dangerous situations. You guys are on the highway there. You know, that's, that's insane. I <laughs> we know spend a lot I of our time it. there. Yeah. I, I lived at the highway. That was where I was more scared than burning buildings. So, Absolutely. you know, you're watching out for each other. Um, where you are, does Route 90 go past you, um, I'm sorry, Tom? Yeah, oh, absolutely. We have part of the 90. Yep. My fire yeah, company responds up there. That's the scariest place in the world. <laughs> it's like, I, I'll tell you what, when I was a chief, I always said I feared a line of duty death on a highway more than any structure fire. I really did. Well, yeah, you're absolutely you're right. I think it's more dangerous. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Without a doubt. Because you, can yeah. you can't always predict fire. But you can't predict with the person trying to take pictures on their cell phone and they're driving past you at 65 miles an hour will do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's amazing um, to watch today. Oh, God. You sit there yeah, on the side of the highway and there, almost every car driving by, whether it's the driver, the passenger, and they're there. They're videotaping everything going by and not paying attention. And, you know, I tell all my guys, as soon as we're done and we can get off the side of the highway, behind the trucks, get there and stay there. Don't walk out into the lane. Don't 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 yes. even get there because people aren't paying attention, especially with that no, giant S curve we have on the highway where we are. Because yeah, you don't right. know somebody's there until you know they're coming around that corner, yeah. and, and they don't slow down. Nobody slows down for for flashing lights or anything anymore for cops, firemen, no. anybody. They do not. We had Route 15, which is. You know, Route 15 and 91, but Route 15 was, especially when it's icy, That's scary. was so That's scary. scary. <laughs> oh, my Even God. Even on a sunny day, it's scary. Because there's people, I mean, you know, 90 miles an hour on that road. Yep, a bumper to bumper. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Yeah, all the, year, all the years I worked the ambulance service over there, I remember 5 and 15. Ugh, uh, nightmare. Yep. But anyway, um... So I'm just kind of summarizing a little bit. So you guys, um, Tom, you've been in the fire service since 1985, you said? 82. <laughs> 82. Okay, well, yep. I'm beating you by 10 years, almost. <laughs> and so I am an old shit. 
And you, Rob, you've been doing emergency service, I'm going to say probably 25 years. I've been in since 93. Okay. So, so you're not 29, 29 years. years. 28, yep. 29 years. Yeah, 29. You're right. 22. So, 29 years. So you've seen the positive changes with mutual aid. And I think that's a positive thing, especially on the volunteer side. And um, don't be offended, uh, Tom, if I say volley kicks. Volley kicks are huge. And they're a huge problem in the volunteer fire service. Um, and that's a shame. But we've gotten through that where we have automatic aid and good mutual aid and we're training together. And I think we've progressed so much in the last 30 years, 30 plus years. Uh, and I think um, we're heading in the right direction. Um, I like the idea of a county, again, for the areas that are all volunteer, much like Erie County, maybe for daytime responses, but uh, a three-man or four-man engine on employed by the county, but the volunteer fire chiefs and the volunteer fire companies would run that team, but they would cover like eight towns. And I think mm -hmm. that would help shorten the response time on a Tuesday afternoon. I know after work hours and weekends that the volunteer service is doing a great job. But if that Tuesday afternoon at 10 o'clock, Mrs. Smith deserves the same level and speedy service that you, I would get if I called at 8 o'clock at night. And I think that's one solution. And it depends on where you are. I know on Long Island, it would be a huge help. Um, well, in Erie County, I, I don't know the demographics, but I think it would probably work there too. And I know that some towns have done that where they'll staff what they call a mutual aid pumper or ladder during daytime hours. Um, I'm not saying it's done every day. I'm not even saying it's being done anymore. I know it's been experimented with um, where they'll take a few firefighters from a few different departments and staff a mutual aid engine or truck for the daytime hours. And that engine will cover certain territories or districts well outside of the district. It's a great idea. It is it's yeah, another great idea. That's a fantastic idea. idea. That's, we that's can't a, be afraid to try anything. And let me tell you one thing. I, I'm one of the again. I'm one of five commissioners, and I'm the youngest. <laughs> one, one thing. One thing. The one thing we all get accused of, right? And this is a general statement, but us old timers, we get accused of always saying no, no. No. And I am so proud of us that we put this recruitment and retention committee together over a year ago. And they've come with uh, up to us with a bunch of new ideas. And, and this duty shift one is one of them. And I'm just so proud of us for saying, you know what? What do we have to lose by trying? We can always change it. We, you know, what do we have to lose? We said that at our meeting. We all looked at each other. And I'm not going to say there wasn't some, you know, some issues to work out and some bumping bumps in the road. Of course there was. But when a board works together and gives everyone a chance at the table to talk and express their opinions and come to a consensus, at the end of the day, no one can get upset with whatever the decision is. In this case, we said, what do we got to lose? How is it going to hurt us? That's what I actually – how is this going to hurt us? And if we find that it is some way that we can't think of today at the meeting, well, then we'll change it. So – I tell everybody, ask me in six months and ask me in a year how this hours program's going. Because the first going on, 
month number three tomorrow, it's been pretty darn good. Well, I do have to correct you. It's something you said. How can they complain? They're firefighters. They will find something to complain. <laughs> They're fighters. Trust right. me. Absolutely. Yeah. Somebody got ordered an hour, and now they're upset. So, yes, I get it. Yeah. Um, I think we've had a great conversation here tonight. I think we've uh, covered a, a pretty huge area. Um, I was going to open with this, but we, I didn't. But as we get to closing, I, I want to, um, you know, if you pray, I don't know if you pray or not, but uh, to all our listeners, if you do pray, please pray for our firefighters in you. Ukraine and the citizens in the Ukraine, uh, the firefighters there are fighting fires in body armor, you know, but they're still doing their job. They're firefighters. They're just like you and me. And, you know, we like to say we're brave, but holy shit, these people are incredible. And, um, you know, if you don't pray, keep them in your thoughts. And, uh, you know, let's hope this whole world starts to settle down a little bit sooner rather than later. And, um, What I always close with every month, and um, it has nothing to do with firefighting, um, but I believe it. Um, if you have a choice um, to buy American or something made somewhere else, try to buy American. I know you can't always. I know sometimes you can't buy a hat or you can't buy a, a laptop made in the United States. But um, for Rob and I, we make a living off of people's taxes. So people are working, they pay their taxes, and they don't try to shut down the budget. And Rob, where you work, you guys vote on your budget almost every year. Is that how it works? Yes, every year we vote on our budget. And so it's pretty scary. It, um, we, we've had years where it's been voted down multiple times, and we've come close to having the state come in to take us over because, you know, people don't want to pay their taxes. And I, I try to explain to the taxpayers when they have an issue or a problem or why do we pay you so much? It's, Hey, we're an insurance policy you're paying for. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. No, we're no, we're no. your insurance policy. And sometimes they don't think of that. And when you try to explain it that way, Hey, we're just another insurance policy that you're paying for. I never thought about it yeah. like that. Do, do they pay for cops? So they do they play for snow plows every year? You know, yeah. And garbage removal, everything. You know, so, uh, yep. again, um, you know, so your salary and, Tom, your equipment, the building that your people work in, they're funded by taxpayers, directly or indirectly. You guys are a district. Um, mm -hmm. But many towns, the, the town funds a new fire truck or the city funds right. a new fire truck. So, again... If, if a, a baseball cap costs you $12 for an American-made one and $9 for a Chinese-made one, think about it. You know, make a conscious decision. Uh, you know, we can blame the Republicans or the Democrats, whichever side of the fence you sit on. But a lot of it comes on us, you know. Um, people always argue with me, well, you have a Toyota. Yeah, but my Toyota was made in Texas. The only thing that was not made in Texas is the transmission was made in Japan. I looked at the same size Chevy. It was only 67% made in USA. Mine was 91% made in USA, even though it has the Toyota label on it. I don't care what the profits go. I care that they're paying American workers. You know, uh, Goodrich tires made overseas. 
Michelin makes all the tires in the country that they're sold in. So if you look a little deeper, you can help our economy a little bit. And, you know, right now it's pretty scary. Uh, I know you guys see the same things I see. So try to do what you can. And I'm not saying you have to. I mean, you still have to provide for your family and do that. But, you know, think about it. Um, no, Tom, if, you're buying, you, if you're buying American, you're supporting you're supporting your neighbor, your fellow relative, something. Because mm-hmm. one way or somehow, that money's here. That money comes yeah. back and stays right here and supports all of us. So um, yeah, I I grew up in a family that you know worked for very large manufacturers of aircraft engines, and you know I grew up the same way. Buy American, buy here, buy. You know, buy what you can that's made in this country. I'd love to hear that. Now, Tom, I want to ask you a question. Just give me a summary of everything, of all your thoughts on everything we talked about tonight. In, in you know, in a couple of sentences, maybe a paragraph. Sure. Yeah. You know, summarize well, mutual your aid, thoughts from this evening. I'll summarize uh, my article <laughs> that was in Fire Engineer this month. Fire Engineering this month, coincidentally, on mutual aid. Mutual aid is more than words on paper. What it means is, yeah, it's great to write it down and have a plan on paper, but you've got to get together with your mutual aid partners and train and get to know them, break bread together after training so you really get to know them and realize you're not all that different. Ensure your equipment's compatible, and if it's not, what you got to do to make it work. So mutual aid is more than words on paper. It's also putting egos aside to work with your neighbors and understanding that Mr. and Mrs. Smith really don't care where the help is, they just want the help as quick as possible, and they don't want to hear about some long simmering feud that his aunt's mother's sister's friend's aunt's mother's father said to the fire chief's sister's aunt's mother 35 years ago. <laughs> they just want help to get there as quick as possible by people that can work well together. So that's mutual aid. Work well together, and remember it's more than words on paper. Don't be afraid, afraid to try new things in the volunteer fire service. We can. I I love our history. I teach a class on our history. I, I I'm a big history buff, and we have so much to be proud of as a fire service where we came from and how we've grown, and in each of our own individual fire departments where we've come from. We need to be proud of our history, but we can't be afraid to change and try new things and see what works. And if it doesn't, don't be afraid to change it again and make it a true firehouse. Chief Duffy, as you said, I agree with you. It's a firehouse. Fire station is too official. In my area, there's a lot of fire halls. That's a very social term. There's nothing wrong with that. We want to have fun at the firehouse. But I believe a firehouse really is what we're after. Just like your own home, warm, welcoming to everybody. And you treat everyone like your brothers and sisters like it should be. It's your second family, awesome. absolutely. Awesome. Rob, give me your thoughts where we went all over the place. Actually, we were pretty focused tonight. Usually we're all over the planet, but uh, <laughs> your thoughts on tonight. No, I you know, I have to agree with what Tom says. Whatever you're putting down on paper, get out and practice. Train on it. Work on it. See what works and doesn't work. And I can use our regional dive team as an example of that where it was totally separate equipment, separate training companies and everything where we came together and we're one now 
and we can work as one unit. I can go work with a Portland guy. One of my divers could be tendered by a Middletown firefighter or vice versa. And we all are under the same training guidelines, um, same operating procedures. So it all works the same. Um, and, and thing more than you can do is, is practice and train and practice and train. And I continue to teach on the side. I teach for Harper County Fire School. I do that to keep my skills up. And you never know what you're going to learn from your students either. So always be willing no. to listen. Be always be willing to listen and, and keep an open mind about things because they might have learned something somewhere else that they're bringing back to you. And you're like, wow, I never thought of that. Or maybe this could work. Let's go try it. And I know the shift that I work on, we're very good with that. We're always willing to try something new. If it's going to save us time, make us more efficient, use less energy, of course, let's go do it this way. And one of the conversations I have whenever I've been moved as a uh, shift officer is I sit down with the entire crew. And the first thing I ask them is, guys, what do you want to see from me? And the reason I do that, let them talk. I want to hear what they have to say before I have to give my speech of what I think and what I want them to know and to be able to do. And the three years that I've been a lieutenant, it's, it's worked out well. And they've been very receptive to it. Problems, issues, they'll come to me. They know I have an open door and, hey, let's talk about it. Um, the mutual aid stuff, keep practicing on it. Pull from other departments. Think about, you know, there's areas I know that just pull, we're only going to pull these two towns in. Well, sometimes we have to go beyond that. And I think the state of Connecticut actually as a whole is starting to do that with the whole task force concept that they're using now and pulling different mutual aid companies from farther away to come in and relieve people. So two or three towns aren't being burdened with one big incident and there's nothing left to replenish their departments. Cool, cool, cool. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, so you still do work with Capital as well? Uh, here and there, um, unfortunately, you know, with my wife and, and her, um, wife. her Lyme disease, it hindered a lot of my travel to, to do that. But I'm still constantly in touch with RJ and we bounce ideas off each other. And hopefully one point here, I can get back down that way and head to Pennsylvania or Virginia and Maryland and, and do some more teaching with the guys. But I'm still connected with them, still talk with some of the guys. So we have a good time and they're a great group of people. That's great. I have to agree with uh, one statement really strongly. The best way to learn yourself is teach because you don't want to look like a fool when you're teaching. So you better know as much as you can. And secondly, sometimes that guy who's got three months on will come up with something none of us veterans ever thought of because it's not what we have done. And because he came from a different background, he looked at it from an a civilian's point of view and came up with a great solution. Um, I learn something every time I teach, and I think that's a great perspective. Um, we don't know everything. We don't, we don't even know anything, actually. And, uh, you know, keep sharing the knowledge and keep doing what you're doing, both you guys. Till next time we chat, uh, please stay safe. And to our listeners you out too, there too. in uh, fire engineering land, uh, until next month, uh, Jim Duffy, for Anthony Avillo, signing off till next month. And you guys, uh, you probably have a couple more things to say. I'm ready to listen. I'll stay here as long as you want.
I just want to thank you for inviting me on tonight. Really appreciate it. It's always great to talk about our great fire service, no matter what the topic is. And good topics tonight. Thank you. Yeah, I think they, uh, we, we, well, we could keep talking about this, but I think we covered sufficiently. You know, firefighters have a short attention span. Um, an hour and a half is probably um, as much as they can take before they have to go um, say hello to their wife and their kids again. So, again, um, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And to our guests, thank you so much. You did a great job. Very, very happy um, with where we went tonight. Stay safe. You too, Chief. Thank you.